Today we're talking to Ed O'Brien from Radiohead, widely regarded as one of the biggest bands in the world. I was not a happy chap. I thought being in the best band in the world, being in love with somebody who's really great would solve all my problems. Well, we all know that's not going to do it. I'm Kirsty Robinson and this is Saints of Somewhere. In each episode, an incredible guest talks to me about their saints, their heroes and defining influences. Kindness is such an important trait. That's what the world needs at the moment. It needs kindness. It needs kindness to one another. It needs kindness to the planet. Ed met his bandmates while they were at school and even before their very first practice, Ed says something happened. Life somehow fell into focus and the rest, nine albums and almost 30 years later, is music history. I was very lucky, and I am very lucky, that my whole life sort of went into focus. We delve in amongst that and Ed tells me about his saints ahead of the release of a solo album and Radiohead's third headline spot at Glastonbury. Not only does Ed explain why Quincy Jones is a musical Buddha, but he also talks for the first time about a magical experience that he had with a healer in Brazil. And I was like a kid, magic does exist. My family were medics, and this is something that Western medicine can't explain. It's all beautiful stuff. Here's Ed O'Brien talking to me on Saints of Somewhere. Enjoy. What's going through your mind when you're looking out at that big mental sea of people? Glastonbury's a funny one because Glastonbury is one that sort of, when you step on stage at the pyramid stage, something else happens. And it's, so we played there in 97. And it's sort of like an out-of-body out experience in terms of, I think I've had one true out-of-body experience, but it, in that, that thing that you sort of forget, it's very, very powerful and you just get sort of swept along by the emotion and the energy of the thing because it's a, you know, it's Glastonbury. It's the greatest festival in the world. You don't think in terms of there's 100,000 people out there. You just, you get on and do it and, and you sort of try and tune into the frequency of, that place, if you like. It's a bit like dialing in. It's a bit like, okay, where are we? Where are we? It might take you a few songs to get into it or to find out exactly where you are. Once you're in it, you're sort of there and it sort of goes along and everybody's sort of swept along by it. Does it hit you afterwards that you've been creating this moment that's connected practically 200,000 people together with your music? I always think a great gig, and I, I say this and I, I mean this wholeheartedly, Every single person in that audience is as important as we are. And all we do with our music is, it's like striking a match. A great gig is like, um, it's like this energy and it's reciprocated and it goes back and forth, back and forth. And the music is, you know, we've just prepared that. We've just done that. That's what we do. I don't think it's any big deal. We're just, everybody's having an experience and every single person in that audience is as important as us as part of that experience. So I don't have kind of like, you know, oh, we did this. It's more a case of like, you know, if you meet people afterwards, it's like, wasn't that fun? If it was a good night, wasn't that great? In terms of we were all great. We all rose to it. We all participated. I know that you go to the festival every yeah. year as a punter. Yeah. Do you think that it's feeling more powerful and potent than ever? I do. And I think it's really important on, a, on so many levels for me and my, and my wife when we go in terms of it's a reconnection with us as human beings. And 
first day or so you're just you're shedding your city skin you know we we live in this world that's really pretty challenging even if you have the good fortune to live the way that I do and the life that I have and I'm under no illusions it's very very privileged but even so I still feel the challenges of this planet you know you arrive at Glastonbury and you sort of start this this whole thing of you know you're in you're in nature you're shedding the skin and I I feel like we're tapping into something very very primal about four years ago I was in Shangri-La about four in the morning with a bunch of us as we always go and a friend's father joined us and he is in his mid-80s and he helped set up the first festival and he basically turns up on a whim he knows Michael Evis and sort of um, Michael I'm here you know and everybody lets him in and I was talking to him and I and uh, I said it's about four in the morning rabbiting and I said what is it about this place it's it's it feels so primal that we're doing and he said he said it's the meeting of the tribes of the north the south the east and the west and it's true and it's something very very tribal something very very primal it's what as human beings we're lacking at the moment that connectedness being in nature it's around the summer solstice we're also life has become so removed from this modern living and the 21st century material ways that's what i'm craving but i think that's what a lot of people are craving we always go back and i think many people go back feeling reconnected but also our faith in humanity has been restored it's like human beings are capable of extraordinary things don't let anyone tell you not but modern society puts you in your place and says you do this you do that we're going to do this we're going to do that and it's sort of yeah, we, we, we need it. We need that stuff at the moment. You've also got a solo album in the pipeline. Yeah. Do you know what it's going to be called yet? And why now? I do. And I'm not going to say what it, I have a working title, but that's... Why now is a good question. I never wanted to make... I had no illusions about wanting to go out and make another record on my own record because Radiohead was everything for me. Also having a family I've got you know I've got children now 10 and 12 but been through the the early years with them and I it was very it's been really important to me because I, I came from a sort of split family it was really important for me that my family life and Radiohead life was was sort of imbalanced and and certainly when my son was born I really contemplated leaving the band because I thought I just don't want to be an absent father so I didn't and you know I'm happy I didn't but there was a whole I didn't have any other time apart from you know kids and Radiohead and I didn't want to do anything I had no illusions and then about four years ago we finished the tour uh, in 2012 and me my wife my kids we went to live out in Brazil for a few months and we lived in the middle of the countryside in the on a farm lived very 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 simply it was such a rich experience very much like the kind of Glastonbury experience there's no mobile there's no wi-fi it's just us and life was reduced to its really key parts and that was for me was music and family the kids go off to school the local village school during the day my wife started you know she picks up the paintbrushes and what am I well I know I shipped out all this gear musical equipment I thought I'm going to immerse myself and I had this idea that I just really wanted to get my head around electronic music is something that you can do on your own sort of immerse myself for a couple of months and used to walk up this little track to this tiny little house stroke shed that had power and 
I sort of noodled away and I just really didn't enjoy it. After about two months, so I can do this, but what am I getting out of this? Not a lot. So I started, I had my acoustic and my acoustic guitar and that's what I really wanted to do. And then these things, just these riffs and songs just started to happen. We got back home, Radiohead was off for another year. So I went off to Wales for a couple of weeks. I thought, there's something here that's really grabbing me. It's like this pull. So I went off to Wales for a couple of weeks and wrote more. More stuff was coming out and I was getting really excited. And then I knew what I wanted to sing about. A big influence was Walt Whitman, Leaves of Grass. I, I read that and I'd, you know, I'd go for walks and this music was coming out. So I just started the process of demoing it in a studio in Oxfordshire with a friend. Before I knew it, I had a series of songs that I'm really vibing off. And my initial thing was, hopefully I can take these to the band. And then it became, when we reconvened two years ago as a band, it became obvious that that wasn't necessarily going to work. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna make, make my own record. It feels to me completely natural because the pull comes from not me going, I want to make a solo record. That's something I have no... It's like the music has led me. It's just like I'm excited because of the music. I'm excited to to have this experience making the music, but also, you know, to share it with other people and to see what, what other people think of it and feel more not think about it, feel it. It's It's heart music. It's not head music. It's heart music. Can't wait to hear it. So look, we're here to talk about your heroes, yes. inspirations, your yeah. saints. We're yeah. going to start off with your parents, even yeah. John. Yeah. What is it that you admire about them and how have they shaped the person that you've become? When I was thinking about my saints, I thought, you know what? My parents, as I get older, I've realised they are your best teachers. Even the stuff that you know, you, you know, so I mentioned earlier, for instance, I came from a split family and for years I found that really hard. And it put me into a sort of a mild depression for years and years and years. It didn't really get sorted out until my 30s. Until I acknowledge it's kind of like if you don't process stuff properly at the time, grief, anger, all this stuff. Doesn't go away. Doesn't go away, does it? You put a lid on it. You're not, And also in the 70s, you're not allowed to show it. No one talks to you about it. it. Literally, you're feeling really hurt. The two people you love most in this world decide to split up. That's a big part of where I am. That's a big part. Like family life is really important to me. There's, when the kids were born, that was a primal thing again. It's just like, this is the most important thing in my life. I took the, the, the finding of the love of my life very seriously. You know, finding my wife was, uh, was, you know, the right person was really important because I knew that I could see from my parents' uh, situation, they're married young, they weren't suited. Eve, my mother, she was young when she had me. She was, well, young by today's standards. So she was 24. She was a very beautiful woman, very incredible energy, but also very, very, very kind. So kindness and being kind to people. And I've erred a couple of times in my life, I must admit, you know, maybe at school, but generally my default position is trying to be kind and empathetic to people. And it's not like I'm not trying, but that's just me. And I think the the seed was planted by my mother. And it's a funny thing because, I, you know, when you're a teenage boy, kindness isn't really... 
not top know, of the list not is it? top of the list being cool you're normally top of the list as yeah yourself isn't it your ego yeah and, your ego and being smart and yeah. wise and kind of street to me as i get older kindness is such an important trait and for my father so my father there was sort of different backgrounds my mother came from you know i'm a complete mongrel so her mother, my grandmother on my mother's side, she was born on the Mexican side of the border with Texas, Nuevo Laredo. She had, you know, classic kind of immigrant parents who, they were Irish, escaped the famine. My father was brought up in a big sort of Catholic family. Um, he was definitely the black sheep of the family. I mean, I think he would say so himself that he wasn't the easiest of people. He had a lot of baggage. The Irish thing was really strong growing up. Now, Ireland in the 70s was was not, especially living in Oxford, you know, there were all the Irish jokes. There was the whole thing of the IRA. Irish were outsiders and they were the ones who'd come over and taken the jobs and the navvies and stuff like that. So my father felt a very strong Irishness and that gave him a really sort of anti-establishment outsider mentality. And that was really important for me because that came to question authority, question the media, question the establishment and thinking for myself. And Oxford was a very, very, it's a very elitist place, somewhere that's as academic as that. It's, it, there's a lot of jockeying for position. And then you also had the working class part of town, which dealt with the motor industry. And it was interesting with my father, I saw he was a lot more comfortable with East Oxford and patients or whatever. He was an osteopath or he didn't have much time for the whole middle-class part of Oxford. He, you know, the chattering classes, he, he sort of found it all a bit false. And it was really, you know, I come from a very establishment background in terms of private school and all of that, but I never felt comfortable. But the, I think the interesting thing for me, I find is I can mix with anyone. And I've now learned to be discerning whatever. And there are good people in all strata. And that's the other thing. And you learn pretty quickly. It's not where you're from. It's where you're at. I have no sort of feelings of superiority over anyone. And I, I, it's just not in me. And I think a lot of that, it comes from my parents. It really, really comes from my parents. You've spoken about um, feeling like an outsider during your teens yeah, in the past totally. as well. Yeah. And you've also spoken beautifully about that moment when life really fell into focus for you. Yeah. And you started playing with the band yeah. for the first time. Can you just yeah. describe that a bit for me? Yeah, it was, well, I felt I was really lost. I was lost as a kid. I was in an environment like a, a schooling that, you know, I had some, I was lucky. I had some, you know, I had some nice friends and one particularly really close friend I'm still close to. But it wasn't a closeness that you opened up to. I was just lost. And I think like a lot of kids were. And the only thing that made a difference was listening to music. And again, I'm really thankful for that. Feeling lost made me so emotionally attached to the things that I love, the music that I loved. My whole thing was just trying to get by, trying to get a laugh whenever possible. Our, our band was unique in, in school because most bands came from within the year, the school year. That was typical of it. And our band didn't. And I knew Colin from, from pretty much the first, time, first year I was there. He, he'd come to school two years before that, started when he was 11. I started when I was 13. But that summer we were in a play together and he came up to me and he saw I had a New Order badge. He said, do you like New Order? I was like, this, so this summer of 82, I was like, yeah. And so we started, 
he was just a lovely kid, you know. He was really friendly. He got a lot of shit in his year because that year were just, they were a bunch of, they were just gnarly, you know. But he was a really, really lovely, lovely kid who I got on with. And Tom I knew from the school bus with my sister. I weekly boarded, but he would go in every day on the Farringdon bus. And I was in some plays with him and he was quite, he was a very striking character. I didn't know Philip and I didn't know Johnny. So it's the summer of 85. And I've been given this acoustic guitar at Christmas by my mum and I, I, I loved it and I was sort of finding my way on it. And there was a friend, a couple of friends in my year who were, you know, one was a young musician of the year and he wanted to jam with me. And I was like, okay, great, whatever. He was going to play keyboards and there was another friend. And I was on my way to the music school and Tom comes out and he says, where are you going? And I said, oh, I'm going to the music school. He said, do you mind if I come along? And I was like, no, not at all. It was a very, very powerful moment because it's suddenly like I was very lucky and I am very lucky that my whole life sort of went into focus in terms of we had this jam, this rehearsal, if you like. And obviously it wasn't anything musically amazing, but there was something about there are moments that you have in your life very few that suddenly like you said everything goes into focus and it feels so right and you get this pull and from then on even in its very early infant stages I suddenly had found my raison d'etre you know this thing that suddenly everything made sense and this was it but I'm in the lower six at school you know how do we navigate this thing called college and stuff like that or university and our parents have spent all this money on this education we all went off to college, we all went off to university, but there was this commitment, this thing that we all felt like, this is so right, this is so right. And we thought we were the best band in the world and we weren't. Do you know what it is? It's following your heart. If you're lucky in life to have that, you can't fight the pool on that one. You just have to follow it and, and work it out because it's your soul or whatever saying, this is what you're meant to be doing. The pull of the heart brings us on really to your next saying which is Brazil because from what I've read you really felt a compulsion yeah and a need yeah to go there do you want to tell me a bit about that around the time of our third album OK Computer I was really I was not a happy chap I thought being in the best band in the world being in love with somebody who's really great would solve all my problems well we all know that's not that's not going to do it so there I am I hadn't met Susan my wife but we were right up there. We made an album that we were so proud of. We were sort of riding a wave, if you like. And I was really, really, really unhappy. And I think, again, it's your soul or whatever saying, you have to sort something out. I picked up this Brazilian compilation that had been left in our management office and I went on a holiday. I went on my own and I put on this, this Bossa Nova compilation and this music just, it touched me in a way that I hadn't been touched for a while and it was kind of, it was quite different and it was very beautiful, but it was also had this melancholy at the heart of it. You know, Brazilian music, they use this word called saudade, sadness. It's a longing and it comes from a longing for to be in a better place, a happier place. So I connected with it. And so this, this sort of thing, Brazil, apart from football, had never really been on my radar. Then I met Susan, my wife, and she loved all things South America. About four years later, we went to Brazil for the first time. 
And we went to have an experience, but we also had, we went to see this healer in Brazil. I was sort of in a bad way and trying to find a way to get better. Friends of ours have been to see this healer who's very well known in Brazil. And we were, before we knew it, we were on our way. We were going for three weeks. We we're going to spend a week with this healer in central Brazil. And we were going to go to Rio for another couple of weeks in Salvador. And it was the most extraordinary experience. I mean, arriving in Brazil, arriving in Rio was just extraordinary. Every color under the sun. It was amazing. We, in fact, we were on a plane with a couple of guys who knew. One of the guys is black. And we saw Trevor the second day. And he said, he said, how's it going? He said, I feel at home. I don't feel different. I said, he said, I have done feeling like that in Britain. And then we had this extraordinary experience and an extraordinary in the right sense, something that Western medical science could never explain. And it was a very personal thing with this healer. And I was like a kid, magic does exist. It got me thinking, my family were medics. And this is something that Western medicine can't explain. But having this experience, was like, it was a bit like, welcome to the first day of the rest of your life. It really was that profound. And suddenly it was just that, oh my God, magic does exist. And there's this whole other world. In Brazil, it's really normal. I didn't see them, but all the locals, they see UFOs the whole time. It's like a 68 bus or whatever. It's normal. And it's not just amongst, you know, it's amongst the middle classes. One of our really good friends is an incredible architect in Sao Paulo. He worked with the Brazilian army in his national service 40 odd years ago with UFOs and, you know, and they've got the highly classified section. This stuff that we, I grew up in this environment of, you know, very much the Richard Dawkins, everything had to be proved, everything had to be scientifically proved. And what I realized is it's a bit like, you know, 700 years ago in this country and people thought the world was flat. It's just we don't have the tools to measure that stuff at the moment. Our brains, our minds, our brains has such a narrow frequency of what we receive, like what we see and what we hear. So you extrapolate on that. We see so little. And the thing about Brazil was it truly, truly opened my eyes and opened my heart. And so we've been going back there a lot and we went to live out there and we went to Carnival in Rio, which was the most extraordinary experience. So I'm under no illusions. Brazil is a very, very hard country for a lot of people. And we experienced just a little bit of the lack of law and order and the potential that you can have out there. And it's a young country. What it did for us in terms of reconnecting the human spirit it's there in abundance you know the people are extraordinary there the fact that they have one foot in the material world and one foot in the world of spirituality that's normal brazil will always be there or thereabouts in terms of winning the world cup because they've got god on their side and i, I say that in verticums because they the world of spirit is very important and it's it exists and it's there and they interact with it whereas in our country the way that I'm talking now, if you'd heard me speak like this 20, 30 years ago, I thought you're mad, you know, you're one of those new ages. What I love about Brazil is it's like very matter-of-factual, it's just normal. And in a way, I feel normal there, I feel more comfortable there because I can have those kind of discussions and conversations and ex explorations 
Whereas in this country, you have to be a lot more guarded about that stuff. Can you tell me about the conversation you had with Kanye about spirituality? Yeah, because I, I think that's that, that yeah, is connected to this. Yeah, isn't I it? did. I said to him at a night out, met up with him through this mutual friend, and I sort of, I think I surprised him quite a lot because I said to him, I said, if you to ask any white musician in Britain whether they believed in God. I can guarantee 98% of them would go, no way. And he was completely shocked. He went, what? You know, I said, yeah. And he, he in classic Kanye, he said, well, I'm God's messenger. You know, you look at Prince, you look at Stevie Wonder. God and spirituality are really important. All the great artists. Why is it that this white middle class thing or this white working class middle class thing and i'm you know i don't go to church i don't go around preaching god but i recognize as whether you want to call it you know chi whether you want to call it the force you know it's in star wars there's this other greater power and and in my experience is you have to engage with it and you have to sort of it makes life richer and, and it's a big part of great musicians as well I think you know you talk about Aretha Franklin she talks about it doesn't come from me I I'm a channel I'm a conduit Miles Davis the same thing part of what I've the last for me the last 15 years is throwing off this intellectual armor that I grew up with this kind of very white very kind of everything has to be proved I mean Richard Dawkins drives me around the bend and I find him really patronizing and I, I, it makes me quite angry sometimes. I've got to, I'm, I'm a lot less now, but how dare you say these experiences that I've had are nothing and don't exist? How dare you say it? It's just because you haven't experienced. If you'd experienced what I'd have experienced, you'd be saying very different things. Do you think that this disconnect that a lot of us are feeling um, is down to this kind of belittling of spirituality? Yeah in our culture. Totally. We're completely spiritually bereft. Why is Glastonbury so powerful? Because it's a spiritual experience. You can get off your face, but getting off your face is it's bringing you together. It's, a, it's an experience. So absolutely. I'm actually quite cynical about it now because I think what's happening a lot in media, what's happening with adverts is because people are incredibly powerful. Human beings are incredibly powerful. And particularly, they become powerful when they're locked into this thing when they realize that there's more to life than just going on Amazon or buying this next thing. But I think there's been a consistent dumbing down. You can argue with me whether it's the conspiracy theory or the fuck up theory. I'm not a great conspiracy theorist, but there's no doubt that the extension of things like credit, letting people borrow more money, people spent more, they're more unhappy, People are definitely weighed down by this thing. And I, I you know, in my own small way, I, I understand that as well, that, you know, being in debt and obviously I don't have that anymore, but those things can weigh you down. Whereas the simple things, and they are simple things, being in nature, connecting with people, the world of spirit is very powerful, makes you feel better. It's a relief as well, isn't yeah. it? Realising that there's something beyond you oh that's God, bigger yeah. than you. Yeah. It's a huge relief. Yeah, it's a huge relief. For me, a big thing as well, I'm, I, I could have put Carl Sagan on there. He wrote this, there's this, there's this book uh, and this photo called the, the Pale Blue Dot. And it's, it was taken by Voyager 2 spacecraft. It's the photo taken of the Earth from the furthest point. It's beautiful. There's this tiny pale blue dot and that's the Earth. And he puts an arrow next to it. And Carl Sagan writes beautifully about 
every drama, every history has all taken place on this place here. There's a bigger picture here, i.e. there's a massive picture and we are so small. And to really think that we are the only forms of life in this universe multiverse is completely nuts. It's illogical, it's incredibly arrogant and egotistical. And also for me personally, realizing there's a bigger picture helps you look at what is going on in the planet at the moment. And I, for years, I got really depressed about it. I was, I used to get so upset. I used to go on a lot of the anti-capitalist marches and, you know, ended up being kettled and all of that stuff because I, I was so upset with the system and I could see what it was doing. But now it's kind of like, okay, this is just a phase. This is all going to change. People are going to look back on this time and go, you know what, what were they doing? They were so stupid. They were navel gazing. They're destroying this beautiful planet. They're being unkind to one another. These politicians, these male politicians, mainly male politicians, you know, with their egos, arguing with one another. You look on it and you go, this is nuts. Thankfully, I mean, I've come to a place where I think, I think I'm gonna see a big change within our, my life big, big change within our children's life and it will get better because you can you can feel it. I can feel it when you talk to younger people now. There's a hunger and an yeah, appetite for it. totally like nowhere before and it Absolutely. might get a little bit more desperate, mightn't it? I think people are clinging on to it. You can, it's like a thread, isn't it? You can just feel it. Hope you're enjoying this interview with the wonderful Ed O'Brien. Just wanted to step in to let you know about the next podcast that we've got coming up on Saints of Somewhere. The incredible actress and filmmaker Arta Dabroshi tells me about growing up in war-torn Kosovo. It's an experience that shaped her, but perhaps not as you might think. Arta refuses to view it as anything but a positive force in her life. Freedom, because that's what we want. You can feel free anywhere, because you're in control of that, how you feel. Nobody can control how you feel, only you. You can find all the details on saintsofsomewhere.com. Okay, let's get on with the interview. I think this is a really good time to talk about your next saying, the Chronicles of Tao. Oh, yeah. What's this book all about and what does it, well, what does this, it speak to you about? Again, it's a really interesting book because it's, it's a true story. It's, it's written by Deng Ming Dao. He's a writer and he met this man in a park in San Francisco, this Taoist master. And he basically befriended him and got to know his story. And this story is incredible because this man was born at the turn of the 20th century in China into quite a well-to-do family. He was taken off to this monastery about age seven or eight in these mountains, the, the Washan Mountains in China. And the story is of this boy becoming a man being trained by monks. So Taoism is really interesting in terms of, and it definitely spoke to me because again, it's got one foot in spirit and it's got one foot in the real world, in the, not the real world, in the world of matter. There's this training that they undergo and the training is really, really powerful. It's hard work. It got through to me, the, the power of the human body is incredible and what we're, what we're capable of doing is extraordinary. Levitation, all these things, these are things, you know, when you travel around the world, you know, in Tibet, Tibetan monks, there will be some who love it. Why? Because this is what they practice doing all their life. It's not so you or I. I was talking to my father about this again. And, uh, and I said, listen, let me give you an, uh, an analogy. Trying my best to find an analogy. 
If we go down into the garden now and we set up a high jump with whatever the high jump, is it two meters 96, whatever, say that's what it is. And we all get, we try and we go, there's no way a human being can jump over that. There's no way anyone can jump over that. And we get everyone in the neighborhood to come around and no one can get anywhere near it. Everyone goes, it's impossible. Then we get the guy, you know, the, the high jump champion. And the only reason we know is because of television. That's the only reason we can go, oh, that's possible. What's interesting is that a lot of this power that human beings and this knowledge, and it's a knowledge as well that's been passed down through the ages, it's been sort of kept quite quiet, quite secret. And in Taoism, it's this lineage. And I was fascinated by the, the kind of the learning and the education. So there was learning about the right things to eat. He says in the book that most Taoist masters live to about 170, 180. And one of the things about Taoism is that everybody should be able to live until at least 100. If you really look after yourself, you can live to 170, 180. And in China, you know, Taoist masters, that was the norm because they lived in, there was no pollution, there was no stress, which they always say is the biggest killer. They knew about the right herbs, they meditated, they did martial arts. What was interesting about this book was this, this man became a man and he'd go off and he'd wander and he'd go off and live a life. And so you had it, the backdrop was the Sino-Japanese War, then the Second World War, and then he moves over to America. The Cultural Revolution in China moves over to America. And each time he'd come back to, he'd sort of go off and he'd err from the path, if you like, and then he'd just come back. It's such a rich book because I think it's one of those books that when you, upon first reading, you get something. Second reading, you get another. It's 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 got layers, but to me, it sort of validated that thing that there is this knowledge that human beings are capable of extraordinary things. You know, whether it's living to 180, whether it's levitating, whether it's this form of martial arts that's like levitating, you just A, have to believe it and B, know how to do it. It's like anything. If you don't believe anything, nothing's going to happen. But I love that thing of, again, we've grown up in an era where, you know, basically, the way we were schooled was don't do this, don't your shit, don't do that, you're not good. We were constantly belittled. We don't realize the power of, of the things that we're capable of doing. And I love this book because again, it validated, it's just like, no, human beings are capable of doing extraordinary things. Now for something totally different. Yeah. Next saint, Quincy Jones. Oh, Quincy Jones. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because they sort of all link up as well. I mean, I don't know him, don't know him as a human being. I mean, obviously I grew up with his record so he produced Michael Jackson's Off the Wall and Thriller and that's sort of how he got onto my radar first of all I mean they're both extraordinary records wonderful records Thriller you know I was into the Smiths at the time so Thriller wasn't going to be I liked it secretly it was like a, a you know guilty pleasure if you like but I'm over that stuff now you know I, I say what I like and I know what I, and it's an ex, it's an incredible record it still sounds amazing he worked with Sinatra, he's worked with Michael Jackson. He made a record in 1989 called Back on the Block. And the first track is, it's the cover of Birdland. And he has Ice Cube on it. He's got Ice T rapping, he's got Miles, he's got Sarah Vaughan. I mean, he's this guy who straddles the world of music. And he's, he's a music colossus. He understands it all, he feels it all. And I he first came onto my radar in terms of He's like this wise sage, a Buddha in the music industry. I heard him being interviewed about 10 years ago. And so we were at the height of 
the crisis in the music industry, and I say that in inverted commas, of file sharing. Everybody's panicking and, you know, Metallica are taking Napster to court. He was interviewed by, I think by Jamie Cullum, actually. The question was, was in a way, he was asked, well, what do you think of file sharing? I think the expected answer was, well, it's terrible. How are musicians going to make a living? He answered, I remember this, I was driving along the car, he said, well, the genie's out of the bottle. And he said, listen, there are kids with, they don't have CD players, they don't have turntables, they've got hard drives full of music. How are we going to come back from that? And I, what he said was so wise and so beautifully eloquent and so understanding and non-judgmental. I have a real problem of people standing on their soapboxes and condemning people. You know, this whole file sharing thing. I never felt comfortable with it because, you know, what do you expect? What do you expect kids to do? We taped music yeah, from the radio when we were absolutely. kids. Absolutely, <laughs> I did that. Home taping, <laughs> yeah. there was that whole ridiculous campaign of home taping is killing music with a skull and crossbones. Yeah. And what? No, it's not. It's spreading We all had our it. fingers on the pause button. Yeah, totally. The whole of the time during the 80s. You know, and it didn't, it, it made us, it made us richer as, if you like, consumers of music. It was just ridiculous. So I love what he said. I then started to read a lot about him. The really, really interesting thing about Quincy Jones is, because a lot of music is arithmetic. It's, it's numbers. It's maths. A lot of music is maths. So he's got one foot in that. He understands... But he's got also, and obviously the music and the feeling, but he's also, again, got a foot in the world of spirit. And he is really interesting. He talks about there are moments in the recording studio as musicians, there are moments when you're playing together when it just happens. And his explanation is that's when God walks through the room. It's about there's something bigger than ourselves at play here. You as musicians turn up and you do the work and... and if you're lucky and you're in the right thing, suddenly something else happens. Again, on the science, he's big onto brain waves and the science of getting in that state. So a lot of people say that when he's in the studio, and I've, I've read accounts of him, he sort of looks though he's half asleep. What he's doing, he's, and he's talked about, he's getting himself into the theta wave state. And the theta wave state is kind of like the third deepest. We have the, the, our normal waves, the alpha wave state, and then there's the beta. And beta is kind of like beta and theta when you're in a meditative or, or you're going into sleep. And that's when a lot of stuff comes. That's when a lot of, for instance, music, he says it's when I can see the bigger thing. I can't, he can't see it. And they're doing a lot of science, of course, on it in America and California, and they monitor the wave patterns. And it's, you know, I meditate every day. And if I'm lucky, I can get into that state whereby, and you can feel it and things become clear. And I think it's a bit like, that's a creative state of mind. It's a bit like, it's meditative. Because he understands it, because he's so brilliant at what he does. He understands that and he wants to, what I love about him is he wants to investigate the science behind him, which is something that, you know, I've had these spiritual experiences. Eventually there'll be some kind of scientific explanation for it. And he's fortunate in the sense that he knows the people he can talk to and he can develop. So he's, he's a brilliant man because he understands not only is his musical talent prodigious and incredible, but he's got this whole other side of it and he talks about it and he's nurturing, I think, with artists. And I went through a real period about four or five years ago when I was just Quincy Jones, Quincy I'd Jones. I'd love to hear a conversation between the pair of you. Oh, I would love to meet Quincy Jones. He's so rich. And I, I think, again, that he's somebody, again, the stuff that I'm talking about here today 
is something that he talks about a lot, but again, it doesn't come across very well in media or traditional media. It hasn't come across that well. And so, but he, he sort of, I think he's, um, you know, I'd love to, as a musician, I'd love to, you know, I've all the stuff I've heard, he's with a microphone in front of him. I'd love to just kind of, you know, have that free for all with him and hear him, you know, pick his brains, pick his heart, you know. We're going to move on to your mm. final saint now. Last, but certainly not least, yeah. Radiohead. Yeah. What has been in the band mean to you? You know, you've heard a bit about finding the other four and making the music. Suddenly, it it was like my raison d'etre. I was kind of the lost kid. Suddenly, there was something to put all one's energies into. It's been an amazing journey. It's been... It's been the stuff of dreams, really. And every band is dysfunctional. That, that's the other thing that I've learned. So we're no different in that respect. We're a family. But it's been such a rich journey. We've had so much luck and we've had... I mean, I've always said it. We've The only reason we were... Well, not the only reason, but the reason we were signed when we were, which was in the middle of 1991, Smells Like Teen Spirit had broken Nirvana massive and the kind of the, the, the musical blueprint, the template was quiet verses, loud choruses. They were hugely influenced by the Pixies, which was kind of like the trademark of the Pixies. Ours, we were hugely, that's what we'd been doing. You know, Johnny, Tom and I would stamp on our distortion boxes when it came to the choruses. And so, of course, what happens is when a song like Smells Like Teen Spirit breaks, suddenly that that, that kind of music, the majors are like, w w who's doing this? We want, we want more of this. And we'd been doing this for kind of two or three years, just practice away in Oxford. So there was an authenticity to us. We're not changing. We're not flying with the, the winds of fashion. We've been doing this and we've got a body of songs that reflected this. So we were signed up because of that. So our timing was perfect. We've been very, very lucky. Our time, you know, for instance, the way we released in Rainbows and all of that, the timing was perfect with that. We were out of contract, was the height of the file sharing debate. We could make these moves. Can I ask you a little bit about that? Yeah. I've got a bit of a fan question. The yeah. biggest Radiohead fan that I know is my brother-in-law. Yeah. And he said to me, you've got to ask him about the hole in Rainbows yeah. experience in terms of the way you released it. Obviously, it was massively, um, it made a big impact in terms of music culture, you know, the pay as, pay as much as you like model. How did that work out financially? It worked out fine. I mean, it's interesting because it's very like the restaurant in New York that charges people, you know, you ask for the bill and they say, pay what you like. Record company contracts, when you're on 12% of the fee of an album that's sold, they're not great. That wasn't a great great deal for artists so it was certainly better than that what was really interesting were the country's breakdowns so the Italians paid the most per head then the Brits and then everyone was kind of much of a muchness I think it was about 60% of people paid something and then of course the countries that are least well off they don't pay that much and I was well you know I'm fine about that it wasn't a model that you'd keep on rolling out but it was perfect for the time and it was it was really fun. You know, we were out of contract with EMI. We had this record we were really proud of. We felt it was a really strong record. We had this opportunity to 
to have a bit of a bit of mischief making within the music industry and it was really interesting because the good people in the music industry totally got it and i think they really loved it and of course you could tell very quickly the ones who are the ones who felt threatened by it you know if you can't see the fun in that if you can't see the excitement of something like that then you're a bit trapped in your own world so it was it was really interesting it was it, it was very good for the band very healthy for us at that time do you still get the same feeling when you're practicing that you did when you're back in those rooms at school yeah the rehearsal times has always been the time when it's the core of what we do five people in a room five brothers doing their music it's just you and you're rehearsing all day long you might break for for lunch so there's the banter there's a lot of humor there's a lot of application there's a lot of chat and a lot of playing and what happens is is you get more successful in the band there are people around you great people whose livelihoods depend on you and that's a that's a really lovely responsibility and that's something the essence of what we do has always been five people in a room and i think when things get stretched as they do inevitably when we've come back to that those are the times that you this is what it's all about it is literally at the heart of this thing and we're not a big organization compared to the size of the band i've seen bands who've got enormous kind of armies of of people we try and keep it as lean as we can but it's still pretty big at the heart of it, it's just the five of us. That's what it is. And it taps into that thing from school, yeah. So you don't ever get sidetracked by the whole fame thing? Hopefully not. I would much rather not do a red carpet. I'd much rather go in through the back door. I don't like uh, award ceremonies. I'll go to them if there's a responsibility. I don't want to piss anyone off, but I don't like situations where there are TV cameras and people. I just... I've done enough of them. I don't see why I have to do them anymore. I just don't like the vibe. I can sort of come out of that. I don't like, it's not my thing. You know, I'd much rather put the kids to bed. For me, it's all about the music. It's all about the music. And so is that the secret to enjoying the success? I think the secret is also to know that it's a bit like going to Disneyland. The heart of it, playing gigs is amazing. And the rest of it, it's sort of, you know, particularly when you're in America, you sort of, have this incredibly sort of privileged life and and all of this and and realizing that don't take yourself seriously take the music seriously and i think there have been times when we've taken ourselves too seriously it's good because you usually in life and coming back to britain you get your ass kicked if you're like that and people or situation circumstances will will put you back on the straight and narrow you seem to speak with gratitude and humility pretty much all the time all the, everything I've heard you say mm. is is full of that and I know that you and the guys in the band have spoken about this kind of obligation you've created your own mm. luck but you've been extremely fortunate as well in your lives you feel this kind of obligation to live an extraordinary life yeah well, that. what do, do you mean by that well you know so for years I struggled again and it may have been gone with the, the, the depression but I, I felt guilty about it all I was just that I had friends who in bands I was like oh no and there we were getting more successful and friends and bands in Oxford. And, and I felt, you know, I felt a huge guilt. And, you know, age 27, I could buy a terraced house in East Oxford. And none of my friends had that kind of thing. And then it's a bit like, a bit like, well, you're going to look at this half empty or half full. And then I suddenly realized, hang on a second. And it was literally about 10 years ago. So there were two figures, Neil Finn but particularly, and Johnny Marr, particularly Johnny Marr, Johnny and Angie, his wife. 
So Johnny was a musician who I, he was the most kind of important guitarist and musician for me growing up. And then Neil Finn invited us to, invited a bunch of us about 16 years ago to come and play with him in New Zealand. And you, Johnny was one of those musicians and Angie came with him. I was suddenly like, oh, hang on a sec. These are musicians who I hugely respect. They are super cool. They've got amazing wives and they've got amazing kids. And they were like these beacons for me in the, in the industry. It's just like, you can do that. Because for me, it was kind of like, well, I'd seen so many people who were like, who'd suffered, kids who suffered because they had famous parents or all of that. And I said, that's, that, that just ain't going to happen. If, if there was any hint of that, I'm off. My kids and their lives are more important than this circus, than this thing. I'll find something else to do. But Johnny and Neil, and they were suddenly like, you know what? I love what they do and they've got great kids. Then it kind of sunk in and it was just like, hang on a sec here. You know, my friends aren't going to think I'm a wanker if I go off and live in Brazil. In fact, I have one obligation. This is the, the humility thing comes from like, I've been dealt the most extraordinary hand of cards this lifetime. It's, I'm living the dream. And for years I was depressed and stuff like that. And that, that's a whole other thing. But I was just like, if I can't be happy, no one can be happy. So that happiness is not, that's happiness is within. So I have to deal with it. That's just shit I've just got to deal with. And I'm, I found out and dealt with it. I can live an extraordinary life and my kids will be okay for it. They're not going to be kind of spoiled brats. What we've tried to do, we've traveled a lot and we've tried to, I'm lucky because I've, you know, my, my soulmate, my wife, feels the same way that we want to have these extraordinary experiences for the kids, but not necessarily live this life of utter privilege. It's not living in some kind of gated residence in, in Rio or Sao Paulo. It's going and if we're going to do it, we're going to live in a small house on a farm and have a rich experience with animals and nature. And I realized that the, the, the real luxury nowadays is not going to a hotel that has a, I don't know, an infinity pool and Wi-Fi and the kind of t -t -t music in the foyer. Real luxury is being in the wilds of nature. And that's the things that we try and try and do. So anything to, to facilitate that. Literally every single day, I am thankful. I, I'm thankful for what I have because so many people are suffering on this planet. So many people living hard lives in this city, in this country, really, really hard lives. What I realized, and I had this great trainer for a while, and he said to me, he said, you're not going to help anybody by bringing yourself down. By being guilty and, and being sort of slightly, you're not going to help anybody. You know, the way that you can help people is by being, having good energy, by doing the right things, by living your life by the right way, being thankful for what you have, being kind to people, be great, be make great music. So that's kind of, that's where I am. I'm very lucky that I can do that. And long may it continue. <laughs> Ed, thank you thank so you. much for having us over here today, taking the time to talk to us. Pleasure. It's been, it's been really special. I think all that's left to say is we'll see you at the front of the pyramid stage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks Kirsty. Thank you. There we are, the lovely Ed O'Brien. 
Does anyone else get the feeling that what Ed's saying about a lack of soul, spirit and magic in the world is resonating with people more and more? It really feels like we're craving meaning more than ever, but it's often just so far out of reach. I think most of us could do with a trip to Brazil to rearrange the furniture in our heads a little, right? Or maybe even a one-to-one with Quincy Jones. Thanks for listening and remember, saintsofsomewhere.com is the place for all past programmes. <laughs>